Welcome to the RE Podcast, the first dedicated RE podcast for students and teachers. Season 7, Episode 4, The One About Marriage. My name is Louisa Jane Smith and this is the RE Podcast, the podcast for those of you who think RE is boring, which it is, and I'll prove it to you. Marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. Marriage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream. Now hands up if you know where that quote is from. A shout out to the first person who tweets me the right answer at the RE Podcast One. So this week's episode is clearly about marriage. Where did it come from? What is it? And what do all the symbols mean in the wedding ceremony? Also, what are the rules about who can get married? I'm going to focus on the Christian wedding ceremony as this is my particular subject specialism and as always there'll be a little exam focus at the end. Marriage is the legal union between two people. Like most English words, it originated from a Latin one, meaning to provide with a husband or wife. But marriage has been around so long that we don't even know when it started or where it started as it predates written records. But the first recorded marriage was in Mesopotamia, that's where Iraq, Syria and Turkey are now, in around 2350 BCE, that's nearly four and a half thousand years ago. But it's been adopted by nearly all cultures and countries around the world over time. Obviously, men and women have procreated from the dawn of time, but marriage was developed as a political and social tool to maybe create political alliances or to guarantee men a biological heir. But we do have some evidence of same-sex marriage in ancient cultures like Mesopotamia, Egypt, Greece, China and Rome. Emperor Nero is believed to have married a young boy and we know Jesus healed a pay of a Roman soldier. It's been translated as servant but it was more like a romantic relationship. But there was no equality, no love, no consent in any of these unions. And predominantly marriage was part of a patriarchal system which saw women as property. There certainly isn't a focus on love or consent in these early marriages. In fact, for most of history, love was seen as a terrible reason to get married. It's so fleeting and fickle. Consent wasn't introduced until the 12th century. Love marriages didn't really emerge until the 18th or 19th century. But what about the biblical basis for marriage? Like most things, it starts in Genesis. A man was made and God wanted a helper for him. This word helper has been used to subjugate women for centuries and support the idea that men are in authority over a woman. But the Hebrew word used for helper, Ezra, was also used to describe God so certainly isn't a subordinate word, but more like a teacher that helps you when you're stuck or an ally that supports you in a war. There is no recorded marriage ceremony in Genesis between the man and his helper, but they do have children because the first thing God tells humans to do is to produce offspring. There is one verse in this story that is interesting though. Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. Now, it's such an interesting verse. Commonly now, it's used to support a belief in heterosexual marriage because the man cleaves to his wife. 
and also a belief in no sex before marriage because the order is that you leave your parents, you get married and you become one flesh. But this Hebrew word which we've translated as cleave and took to mean marriage actually means to stand alongside or to give loyalty to. This verse has also been understood to support a belief in monogamy because it says a man cleaves to his wife, single. But it was not really interpreted that way initially. Abraham, for example, the father of Judaism, Islam and Christianity, had more than one wife. But everything about Genesis places men and women as equals. God made both in his image. It's such a beautiful pattern of humanity that men and women should be standing alongside each other in loyalty and helping each other, but most of all are equal. But it's of no surprise that because of this belief in loyalty, that do not commit adultery makes it to the top 10 of commandments. Adultery means sex with someone other than your husband or wife, but can also mean sex before marriage, which is technically sex outside of marriage. Jesus also emphasises this later on by stating that because two people become one flesh and this is God-ordained, then you can't separate them unless one of them has an affair. If you get divorced for any other reason than that and you remarry, you are committing adultery. Jesus also is a massive advocate of not getting married. I honestly think we could learn a lot from Jesus. There is such a pressure to get married, I think, from both within the church and in secular society. For centuries, unmarried women were at best seen as weird social outcasts and at worst vilified as witches and often killed. So what does the rest of the New Testament say about marriage? Well, it also seems to try and focus on the not getting married bit, which is seen as a much better way of following Jesus because you're not distracted by your spouse. However, it does suggest that it's better to marry than to spend your days longing for sex. It explains it in this way. It is better to marry than to burn with lust. When it does mention marriage, it focuses on the roles within marriage. And it's clear that the translation of the Bible we have favours a patriarchal view of the roles of men and women. That women were created for men. That the husband is the head of the household. That Wives should submit to their husbands and everything. However, husbands are told to love their wives and give themselves up for them as Christ gave up his life for the church. Maybe it would be quite easy to submit to a husband who gives himself up for me. Please, wife, do whatever you want this weekend and I'll do all the work. Okay, husband, I will submit to your will. However, The original Greek word used that we have translated as submit is hapotasomai, which means support. And again, it has military connotations. So deploy yourself in battle for your husband. Again, focusing on the strength of women, not the subjugation of them. If it does mean submit, it could be more with submitting to the biblical principles and not having to obey whatever the husband says. Actually, the word obey is never used in the Bible in regards to husbands and wives. So let's look at the wedding ceremony. There are no wedding ceremonies in the Bible. And this is the case for most of history as well. The families decided on a match and you were married once you had sex. 
Not until the 18th century do we start seeing ceremonies. But over the last 300 years, we have seen certain traditions emerge into the wedding ceremonies that we have today. Please note that many of them have their basis in ancient cultures, but have been adapted by Christianity. Let's start with the white dress. It is mistakenly seen as a symbol of celibacy. This isn't actually true. The reason why traditionally we wear white dresses is because Queen Victoria wore a white dress and we copied her. In actual fact, blue is the colour of virginity and that's why the Virgin Mary is typically dressed in blue in her pictures. The veil was originally worn to ward off evil spirits. But also at one point in history, the bride was entirely wrapped up and the husband would unwrap her. So obviously this has its roots in virginity and being unwrapped or untouched for her husband. The bouquet has its roots in various traditions, sometimes to ward off evil spirits. The flowers were seen as a symbol of fertility. It was often used as a way of masking body odour because they didn't have deodorants or showers. The bouquet toss was actually done to distract guests from ripping off part of the wedding dress, which was done for luck. Often flowers were chosen for their meaning, but today flowers are mostly just decorative. Wedding rings have been used since ancient Roman times. It was believed that you had a vein running from your fourth finger on your left hand up to your heart. The vein amore or something like that. The love vein. In reality, you have a vein from all of your fingers to your heart. You also know that it's customary for the father to walk the bride down the aisle. This comes from a long tradition of women being seen as the property of men. First the father and then the husband. You can see this in the title of this tradition. Giving away. Sometimes the father is asked, as part of the ceremony, who gives this woman to be married to this man? To which the father replies, I do. Ah, the wedding cake. The most disgusting cake known to humans, in my humble opinion. Feasting has always been a massive part of wedding ceremonies, but the cake has an interesting symbolism. It is actually the cake that symbolises virginity. This is why the bride and groom cut the cake with the man's hand on top to signify the breaking of the hymen. You think that's bad? In the 15th century throughout Europe, there would be a bedding ceremony as part of the wedding where the bride and groom would be escorted to the bedroom to consummate their marriage, i.e. to have sex. Often the sheet would be displayed afterwards with the blood from the broken hymen to prove virginity. Now let's talk about the vows. So during the ceremony, certain vows or promises are made. Vows have been said from medieval times, so like the 1st and 2nd century. It's important to note, however, that it's not the vows that make the marriage legal. You have to get a marriage licence before your wedding, and then when you sign the register during the ceremony, that is the point that makes it legal. Today, it is becoming more and more common for people to write their own individual unique vows, but the traditional wedding vows were written in the Common Book of Prayer in the 15th century based on the medieval laws from 1500 years earlier and have remained largely unchanged for those that still use them. So let's take a quick look at them. So it starts by saying, I, name, take you, other name, to be my wife or husband. 
This means that you are declaring your full consent to marrying each other. It continues to have and to hold. There are a few meanings to this. There is a sense of ownership to have something. To hold could mean to hold on to it, both literally and figuratively. So you're keeping hold of something, suggesting that the marriage should not be let go of. Plus, there is the meaning of holding as in physical affection. From this day forward, I mean, yes, obviously stating that the marriage lasts from your wedding day onwards, obviously. For better, for worse, this recognises that marriage isn't always easy, that relationships and life have ups and downs, and your marriage has to last through both. For richer, for poorer. This is probably a nod to the past that used marriages for financial benefit. In Christianity, you can't let money be a deciding factor in your marriage at any point. To love and to cherish. This is actually a change to the original ones that said to love and obey. But the word obey was taken out of the vows in 1922 and replaced with the word cherish. As I mentioned earlier, there is no biblical basis for a husband or wife to obey each other. But some people still use love and obey or love, cherish and obey. I've done a whole episode on love, so you can listen to that episode to explain what the word love means in this context. But the word cherish is lovely. It means to hold as important, to care for, to keep in your mind and heart. I think it's very easy for married couples over time to stop cherishing each other as life and kids and familiarity get in the way. In sickness and in health. Essentially, this means that you can't leave your husband or wife if they get poorly. But I think a lot of people only see this as physical illness, but actually could probably mean mental health as well. Till death us do part. This is a promise by the bride and groom to stay married until one of them dies, and echoes what Genesis and Jesus taught that God makes you one person so you can't split up. And if you do and get remarried, you commit adultery, which is against the Ten Commandments. And therefore, the vows go on to say, according to God's holy law. Christians believe marriage is given by God and that these vows are based on biblical laws set by God. In the presence of God, I make this vow. Christians believe that they are making these promises to God in front of their family and friends. Often it is then said, what God has joined together, let man not separate. And it means man as in humans, not man as in male. All these vows seem easy to say, and we've heard them so, so, so much that maybe we don't understand how difficult it is to keep them. But the reality of keeping them is that it's tough. If you're in severe poverty and struggling to pay bills, or one of you has a severe mental health issue or is in a coma or there's a period of abuse or neglect. You can see why the Bible speaks of marriage in military terms, of arming yourself. As we've seen from the teachings of the Bible, the words of Jesus and the vows in the ceremony, divorce is not part of the Christian teachings about marriage. In the Catholic Church, they do not permit divorce or marry divorcees. However, they do have something called an annulment. As sex is the way that two people are made one by God, if the husband and wife have not consummated their marriage, that means had sex, then the marriage can be 
annulled, i.e. it is declared not legal or not valid by the church. Protestant churches do allow divorce and do marry divorcees. They see this as a loving action in certain situations. The divorce may be necessary if you're desperately unhappy for a long period of time or a victim of abuse. And obviously, as Jesus says, it is permitted if adultery has taken place. It often feels as though the Catholic Church are more deontological, that means they follow the rules, and the Protestant Church is more about situation ethics, which they decide the most loving action in any situation. In the Catholic Church, marriage is seen as a sacrament, an outward sign of an inward blessing. Because on the inside, God has joined those two people together, but that's the invisible bit. The ceremony is a symbol of that union. Catholics also see marriage as for the sole purpose of procreation. For Protestants, it is not a sacrament, and it is not just for the sole purpose of procreation. Finally, I want to look at who can get married. Gay marriage is legal around the world in about 25 to 30 countries so far. It was legalised in the UK in 2013. However, churches do not have to marry same-sex couples, and many choose not to. This is because they believe marriage is a religious act between a man and a woman, as ordained by God. Now, many are against homosexuality relations, full stop. Others accept people's right to be in same-sex legal unions, but they just don't accept it should be called marriage. However, an increasing number of churches now fully support gay marriage and happily marry same-sex couples. Churches like the Metropolitan Community Church in London, the MCC, and obviously our previous guest, Reverend Steve Chalk, his church oasis in Waterloo are really inclusive of the LGBTQIA community stating that the message of the Bible is accepting anyone in a loving, committed relationship, regardless of gender, saying that most verses against homosexuality have been misunderstood. Last year, the Methodist Church voted overwhelmingly for same-sex marriage. This year, the Church of Scotland did. However, the Church of England, Baptist, Catholic Church and many other denominations currently do not, believing that the Bible is clear that marriage is for one man and one woman for life and that homosexuality is a sin. So let's have a quick exam focus now. You should now be able to answer any GCSE question on the definition of marriage, a wedding, vows, divorce, adultery, annulment and remarriage. But could you name two vows or name two symbols in a wedding? Could you explain two similar religious beliefs about marriage? Could you explain two contrasting religious beliefs about marriage? Remember, explain means you need to give reasons for that belief. What Bible verse do you know? I think probably Genesis 2.24 is the most adaptable, that a man should leave his father and mother, be united to or cleave to his wife, and the two become one flesh. But what about those 12 markers? Maybe you could get one asking you to evaluate, is marriage for life? Or that marriage should be between a man and a woman? 
Oh, what about this one? The Christian wedding ceremony supports the patriarchy. That would be an interesting one. If you are a teacher, I'd like to say that I have an entire GCSE scheme of work on marriage and the family. Theme A from AQA's GCSE spec, available on test, with PowerPoint resources, assessments and a knowledge organiser for each lesson. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Can I also plug TrueTube? which has a wealth of videos on many aspects of this topic. As always, please, please, please get in touch. Tweet me at the RE Podcast 1. Email me, Smith at therepodcast.co.uk or you can follow me on Insta at the RE Podcast. My name is Louisa Jane Smith and this has been the RE Podcast, the podcast for those of you who think sex and marriage and annulment and weddings and bedding ceremonies are boring, which they are. But thank you so much for letting me bore the life out of you.